0: My wife and I have a little bit of a quirk. I guess that's what you could call it. We like caffeine-free diet Coke. Now the problem is, it's hard to find, at least in the fountain version, but we know a place. There's one 7-Eleven near our house that has caffeine-free diet Coke. Well, on that, this particular day, I wanted to uh, indulge in my one dietary sin, and so I went to 7-Eleven. Now, there's always a line at that particular 7-Eleven, always. I rarely am in there when there isn't. So I got the Coke, and I stood at the end of the line, and in walked a fella who was obviously homeless walked past the line, and walked past me, and to help me, it was the worst body odor I have ever smelled in my entire life. Forgive me, but as I stood in the line, my concern is that he wouldn't come and stand behind me. I didn't want him to approach me, not with that odor. Well, he didn't. I got the Coke. I went home. Patricia was glad to see me, at least the Diet Coke at any rate. And um, she's always glad to see me. That's my, instead of roses, I take her that Diet Coke. There's another little secret I have, but that's one of the beauties. At any rate, she approached me and was planning on going someplace and had just put on perfume. And just having the experience I did, I couldn't help but think I would much prefer somebody come to me or approach me with perfume than body odor. And I suspect that you would agree with that, right? Suppose I told you the Lord agrees with that, and I'm not talking about physical body odor. Let me explain. In the book of Leviticus, which we've been going through on Wednesday night, it constantly talks about the fact that you should give offerings to the Lord. And then it makes this fascinating little statement. That is a sweet-smelling odor or aroma to the Lord. Ha! Huh. He judges these sacrifices based on their smell. As a matter of fact, uh, there were a couple of priests once who offered some strange fire, it's called, and we don't exactly know what that means, and they died. So I guess that was an offering situation that he thought stunk. At any rate, I think that we could reduce things that we are and do to smell. So I want to talk this morning about when you approach the Lord, And how you smell turn with me to Psalm 24 and I will explain to you what that means Psalm 24 verse 1 the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness the world and all those who dwell therein for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has, lifted up his, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord, the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads. O you gates. And lift up you everlasting doors. The king of glory. Shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads. O you gates. Lift up you everlasting doors. The king of glory. Shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, this is an interesting psalm. There was a time in David's life when he took the Ark of the Covenant, which was normally in the Holy of Holies and represented the place where God's presence was, and he took that Ark up to Jerusalem. We do not know for certain, but many scholars conclude that this psalm was what they sang as they were going up to Jerusalem carrying the ark. I'll explain why they conclude that in a bit, but just to mention that that's probably what's going on here. But it begins by asking, uh, who can ascend The hill of the Lord. That's in verse 3. Another indication that it's talking about those who are approaching the Lord. They are approaching the place where He dwelt in the Old Testament. Psalm 15 talks about who will dwell in the house of the Lord. Psalm 24 talks about who will approach the Lord. Now, I'm adding the idea that those who approach him may have a sweet-smelling aroma, like the Levitical offerings talked about, or they may not. But the point of this psalm is we're approaching the Lord. Who does that? And what is required if you do that? Those are the kinds of things this psalm is grappling with. But let's start at the beginning. In the first couple of verses he's simply affirming that the Lord is the creator of the world. Look at verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. That is simply saying that everything in this planet belongs to the Lord. Everybody in this planet belongs to the Lord. Verse 1 is simply a statement of ownership. The Lord owns the earth and everything and every person in it. That's clear. Verse 2 explains why, gives the reason. Notice it starts with the word for, and it says in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 2, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The idea, no doubt, is that this is a reference to the creation where, according to Genesis chapter 1, when God originally created the world, it was without form and void, it was surrounded by water, it was covered by water, and then he separated the water from the land And then at the flood that canopy of water fell to the earth at any rate he's simply saying in these verses uh, the earth is the Lord's because he created it he created the world now he probably starts out like that because he's talking about going up to Jerusalem which is very Obvious from the latter part of the passage, which we'll get to in a bit So maybe he's starting out by saying something like this The Lord dwells in Jerusalem But he's not limited to Jerusalem. He's the God of the world that perhaps some of the Jews thought that he was restricted to Jerusalem and this psalm is saying no He created the whole world and he owns every person on it. The other possibility is that this is in contrast to the pagans who also had a limited or a limitation on where they thought their pagan God dwelt. So the psalmist is declaring this is the creator of the world, so he owns everything. That's the first point the psalmist is making. He is the Creator God, the Sovereign Lord of the whole universe. Now, how would you apply that? If you just paused right here and wanted to apply that to your life, how would you do it? Well, interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26, Paul applies this verse. In those three chapters, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, the issue is eating meat offered to idols. And what Paul is arguing about is that Christians can eat anything because everything belongs to the Lord. That's Paul's application. May I make another? I have a routine on Saturday night. As a general rule... I refuse to do anything on Saturday night. There are a couple exceptions but that's me and the Lord and the text. And the routine goes like this. I watch the news then I shut it off and then I think about the passage I'm going to speak on the next day. So last night I did that. Now I've heard about this story but last night it was of the news New York and I couldn't make out one report I heard said six states and the other said seven I think it's six states in the District of Columbia now have a rule a law or they're proposing one that you can have an abortion in the third trimester the governor of the state of Virginia A former pediatrician explained, Oh, I know what happens. The baby is born, quote, We make it comfortable, and they let it die, if the mother so chooses. Now that, that, That makes me deeply sad and angry all at the same time. That's what this country has come to. We started in 1973 with Roe versus Wade allowing abortion and now we're coming to infanticide. Let me tell you, God help America. Matter of fact, as I read the Old Testament, God the, one of the last straws was idolatry, and part of what was involved in that is they were, they were practicing child sacrifice. That is deplorable. Say, so, you oh, know, I take it you're pro-life. You think? What is God? Oh, and by the way, I am pro-life. I'm also pro-choice. How can you be both? I believe woman has a right to choose. Anything that has to do with her body. I just don't believe a fetus is part of her body. That belongs to the Lord. Don't tamper with it. I didn't know I felt so strongly about this. This is deplorable, people. It is deplorable. We're now going to kill babies who are born in the name of abortion. That's not abortion. That's murder. is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell in it. Don't tell me a fetus is part of her body. You take out her appendix or her kidney or her liver and it'll die. You take out that little infant and it'll live. And now we're talking about killing it after it's born. How deplorable. You ever heard me preach like that? I don't think I've ever heard me preach like that. Good night. You're dealing with a sovereign God, a holy God. So he says, just remember who we're dealing with here. The one who created us and the world. So he says in verse 3, who is going to ascend into the hill of Him. Who has the right to approach Him? Or who may stand in His holy place? So now, we've made this affirmation of who God is, and now He's going to talk about who can ascend to approach that God. We're talking about approaching the Lord. And He tells us, Look in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who has lifted up his soul, not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So he gives us three or possibly four characteristics of the person who has the right to approach the Lord. And he says, first of all, it's one who has clean hands, You mean you have to have clean hands to approach the Lord? Yes. Now, you say, what if you have dirty hands? You bring those dirty hands to the Lord and he cleans them. That's how you do it. But he wants you to then keep them clean. And that's the point of this. And then he says, a pure heart. And then he talks about, nor you don't swear deceitfully. Now, it seems to me that the hands are talking about your actions, what you do. Your heart is obviously internally who you are, what's your character, and your speech. So those three things tell us who can approach the Lord. So I want to talk about them for a second. Seems to me he's saying you have to have right actions, clean hands. Now let me ask you a question. What action does the Lord want out of us? He wants us to live righteous lives. But let me go a step further. The subject of the book of Romans, in my opinion, is the righteousness of God. You get to the end of the book and he starts applying righteousness, and you know what he talks about? Love. Living a righteous life is love. You know that passage in James 2 that says... uh, Faith without works is dead. Well, what kind of works does God want? And the illustration he uses is of somebody who meets the needs of other people, feeds them, houses them. That's loving. Matter of fact, that's James's point. If you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 together, you see that that's what he's talking about the royal law the one that rules over all the others. It's love. So what God wants out of us is to live a righteous, loving life. Now, the Old Testament says, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus upped the bar and he said, you're to love one another as I love you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That is a sacrificial kind of love you sacrifice yourself for somebody else. Now that's that's expensive. It's going to cost money. It's going to cost time. It's going to cost energy. I'm, I mean whether you're talking about your mate, your children, your neighbor, your friends, your coworker, you love somebody that's going to cost you. That's the kind of person that has a sweet aroma to the Lord. He loves to see that person coming to him. I know a couple. They're not telling very many people about this, but I found out about it. Uh, They're not members of this church. They don't go to this church. But they did something recently, and I thought, now that's as fine an illustration of love as I've heard in a long time. The wife in this couple went to run some errands, and in the process, she came across a lady whose car wouldn't start. So she decided to try and help this lady. It was obviously an old car. The lady was obviously poor, and she had three children in the car. So she calls her husband, and he says, Look, go to the nearest auto parts place and get some jumper cables, and I'll meet you there, and we'll start the car. So they converged on this car, and the jumper cables wouldn't work. So the husband decided, of this couple I know, that, well, it's a battery. And he he said, uh, it's probably the battery, we aren't sure. So they went and bought a battery, $150. Came back, put the battery in the car, took all the cash they had between them and gave it to the lady, it amounted to $40. So by the time they got away from that, it cost them $200. And I want you to know... That was a sweet-smelling offering to the Lord. They got nothing out of that. This poor lady said, nobody's ever done anything like that for me, ever. Would you pray with me? She was a Christian. Now that's the kind of thing the Lord wants. And that's the kind of person he delights to see coming. Not that he doesn't wants you to come if you have dirty hands. Come with your dirty hands and he'll clean them. But what he wants is that you come with clean hands. The next thing he says is with a pure heart. Some interpret that to mean with pure motives. And I think I could make a case for that based on James chapter 3. On the other hand, uh, I think it's Possible that others say that this is uh, a right attitude uh, at any rate I want to make another connection hands are external hearts internal right the Lord wants both and I'll go one step further and say the external reveals the internal right so if the internals right Hopefully, you'll get the external right. There are two different kinds of birds that fly over the desert. Uh, one is looking for the rotting meat of a dead body because it thrives on that kind of a diet. The other kind of bird that flies across the devil ignores the smelly flesh of dead animals and looks for the colorful blossoms of desert plants. One is called a vulture, and the other is called a hummingbird. You see, we can tell the difference by their diet. We can tell by what they do as to what kind of bird they are. And that is true of us. Our actions reveal our attitude. Our actions reveal our heart. Then he says, the Lord wants, well, he mentions uh, lifting up your soul to an idol, not lifting up your soul to an idol. And because he says lifting up your soul, I take it, the idea this is still a heart problem. So I, you could say there are four characteristics. I think there are probably three. At any rate, the last one is, and he doesn't swear deceitfully. Translated, you don't lie. My mother used to say to me, you tell a lie, you'll do anything. I think there's some truth to that, you know? If you you can just, if you lie all the time, then you'll do anything because you figure, well, if I get caught, I'll just lie about it. So don't lie. But can I expand that and say this has to do with your mouth? If the hands are your actions and the heart is your attitude, this is clearly your mouth. The Lord wants somebody that speaks truth, not lies. That's what he wants. So let me tell you, give me some lessons about the tongue. Keep your words soft and sweet. You never know when you might have to eat them. Gossip is like soap. It's mostly lie, L-Y-E. Profanity is the public announcement of stupidity. A lie is a coward's way of getting out of trouble. When you sing your own praises, you're always getting the tune too high. In many things, James says, we stumble If a man does not offend in word, the same is a perfect man, and he's able to control the whole body. Those are some lessons on the tongue. So, your tongue, like your actions, reveal who you really are. Matter of fact, Uh, My wife's sister has a little slogan. People tell you who they are, just listen to them. That's really true. Just listen. It's what they talk about. It's what they don't talk about. And if you listen carefully, you can tell. Matter of fact, it's real easy sometimes to talk to a person you've just met and find out if you start bringing up spiritual things, just how spiritual they are, by what they say or don't say. Been doing this for a few years, and it's kind of real easy. They, they tell you, just listen. Some people don't ever talk about the Lord, ever. And others can't shut up. That's good. They talk about the Lord naturally, like they know him. Wow. Aesop had a bunch of fables, as you know. One of them says, once upon a time, a donkey found a lion's skin, and he tried it on, and he strutted around, frightening a whole bunch of animals. Soon a fox came along, and the donkey tried to scare him, but the fox, hearing the donkey's voice, said, if you want to terrify me, you'll have to disguise your bray." The donkey bray. His moral clothes may disguise a fool, but the words will give him away. You can fool us with your words. You can deceive us with your words, but not the Lord. So, the psalmist says here is the creator, God of the universe. Who can approach him? Somebody with a clean hands and a pure heart and a mouth that doesn't lie. I assume he means and speaks truth. Then he gives the result of that. He goes on to say in verse 5, He shall receive blessing from the Lord, the righteousness from God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek Your face. Ah. Here's the result. The result is the Lord will bless you. Now, would you like God's blessing on your life? All right. Well, here's a threefold test what are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you saying? That's either a sweet smelling aroma. Or it stinks in the nostrils of God when it's a sweet-smelling aroma he blesses you but look at the verse what it says is he blesses you with righteousness huh you mean I have to do all these three things to be righteous yep That's what the text says so you should be seeking the Lord for his help to do those three things. And that's the point of verse 6. This is Jacob. Remember Jacob sought the Lord, wrestled with the Lord. And the Lord blessed him. So if you seek the Lord for the grace to do those three things and others, then he will bless you. Those who seek him. Then he says those who seek your face. And he addresses the Lord. But what he's going to bless you with, among other things, is righteousness. Righteousness. Now I need to pause and explain what the Bible teaches about righteousness. There are two kinds. There is a righteousness when you trust Christ. The Bible talks about justification by faith. Justification means to be declared righteous. Jesus died to pay for your sin, arose from the dead, and if you trust him, he declares you righteous and guarantees you heaven. But there's a second kind of righteousness in the Bible. There's a righteousness called a practical righteousness. Now theologians trying to make the distinction between these two talk about a positional righteousness and a practical righteousness. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So, Christ died, arose from the dead, I trust him, and as far as God is concerned, I'm righteous. That's my position. Some theologians call it judicial righteousness. All right, now that you've got that, he wants you to be righteous. And what does that look like? Clean hands, pure heart, truth speaking lips. That's it. So, he's saying, seek the Lord, and he will reward you with practical righteousness. That's what this passage is saying. Remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path in Righteousness. Or Psalm 23. He restores my soul and leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He wants to lead you in righteousness. And if you seek him and trust him to give you clean hands, a pure heart, and a truth-speaking mouth, then he'll guide you into all righteousness. And that is the point. Now, this psalm ends with a rather odd almost conclusion. All of a sudden he says, lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors. The king of glory shall come in. What in the world is going on? I should say, what in the word is going on? He starts out with this affirmation that God is the creator of the world. Then he talks about this: who's going to approach that kind of a God. And he ends with an anthem, an anthem of praise. Only the praise, uh, the anthem is addressed to the doors and the gates. Look at verse 7 lift up your heads oh you gates lift up you everlasting doors and this is the part of the passage that has led scholars to the conclusion that this is an ascent song he's ascending up to jerusalem and so just imagine in your mind ascending up to the city of jerusalem which sits on the top of a hill and you're carrying the ark and they're singing this song and they're singing to the gates and the doors of the city and of the tabernacle up in the city, and it's saying, open, open. And the rest of the passage does that. So he says in verse 8, Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the long mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your, you everlasting doors. He does it again. The king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So he is constantly saying, lift up your heads. So the gates are pictured as having their heads bowed low for some reason, not explained. And he says, lift them up. The king of glory is coming. The king of glory is coming. So lift up your heads. Open your doors. Lift up the doors. And he mentions the Lord as the king of glory, the Lord mighty in battle, and the Lord of hosts, meaning he is the Lord of armies who gives victories, and David had experienced that as the head of the Israeli army. Wow. All of a sudden, he's talking about the Lord as king. Now notice, in the first two verses, the Lord is creator and he owns everything. In verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, he's king. Now, this is very interesting. Matter of fact, let me take a second and explain this, something. Uh, The Old Testament prophesies that the Messiah is coming. Right? What does it say about him? It says a whole bunch of things about him. The one you'll remember is he's going to be born in Bethlehem, right? The other thing you might remember is uh, he's going to die, Isaiah 53, right? Now, according to Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says uh, Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah, died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and arose from the dead, according to the Scriptures. Now, you know the Scripture that says he's going to die is Isaiah 15, 53. Can you give me a passage that says he's going to be raised from the dead? That's a little tougher, isn't it? Well, if you read the book of Acts, Peter and Paul both quote a verse in Psalm 16 and claim it proves the resurrection, because he'll not let his Holy One see corruption, it's Psalm sixteen ten. So I've done a study, uh, I've actually written a small booklet on uh, that, uh, 30 different uh, prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. It's on my website. And uh, most of them have to do, I deliberately chose those that have to do with the first coming of Christ. But more recently, I've dug into some more of those prophecies of the Messiah And I have to tell you that I would have to say, and I haven't studied them all, but my impression is that the Old Testament talks about the coming of the Messiah, he's going to die, but the Old Testament talks probably more about the Messiah's going to come and he's going to be a king. Now, the Old Testament rabbis had a real problem with that. They couldn't put those two things together. How's the Messiah going to die and reign forever? How do you put those two together? Some of the rabbis, ancient rabbis, came up with two messiahs. They had a messiah, Ben-Joseph, Ben is son of, and they had a messiah, Ben-David. Joseph suffered, so they had the suffering messiah, David was king, they had a reigning Messiah. What they didn't understand is there's one Messiah who's coming twice. What they didn't understand was the resurrection. So he can come, die, be raised, come back, and reign. Now, I said all that to say that the Old Testament, especially in the prophets and repeatedly in the Psalms, talks about the fact, the king is coming. The king is coming. Jesus Messiah is coming back, and this time, he's going to set up a kingdom called the kingdom of God. That's clearly spelled out in the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7, in the prophecies he's gave to Daniel in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, and repeatedly over and over and over again in Jeremiah and Isaiah and a number of the minor prophets. I read the other day where 13 of the 16 prophets talk about the day of the Lord, which includes this terrible time of tribulation and then Him setting up His kingdom. Wow. So the King is coming. The King is coming. Now this psalm, is just declaring he is king. But I know from reading the rest of the Psalms, as well as the rest of the Old Testament, and especially the prophets, the king is coming to set up a kingdom. Matter of fact, the Lord's Supper says, I'll not do this again until we're in the kingdom. It's not here yet. It's when he comes back and sets up the kingdom. So maybe... I could conclude from this passage that you ought to have clean hearts, I mean, clean hands, and a pure heart, and a not deceiving tongue, because the Lord is coming back. Because the Lord is coming back. So, to prepare for Him, clean your hands, purify your hearts, speak the truth, not lies, because the Lord, the King, is coming back. Amen and amen. So I would sum up this psalm by saying, when you seek to approach God, then the Creator, the Sovereign, the King, remember, the one who really qualifies to approach the King of Kings is the one who has right actions, a right attitude. And right speech or to say the same thing another way we should cleanse our hands and purify our hearts that we may approach God now and be ready for when the King returns but the point is we need to live a righteous godly life now so we can be prepared for the coming of the Lord Somebody has pointed out that Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are a trilogy. In Psalm 22, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In Psalm 23, the great shepherd is brought back from the dead and tends, cares for the sheep. In Psalm 24, the chief shepherd appears as the king of glory to reward the sheep. Wow. That trilogy we have then are three psalms. Psalm 22 is the cross. Psalm 23 is the crook of the shepherd. And Psalm 24 is the crown. Interesting. I began by talking about a homeless man. had a body odor and I'd like to conclude by talking about body odor have you ever heard a sermon on body odor well you have now but let me ask it to you like this have you ever met somebody and thought and maybe said that person's attitude stinks you ever thought your attitude stank You ever thought maybe you needed an attitude adjustment? Well, I'd like to expand it. Not only can your attitude stink, so can your speech. So can your heart. And I'd like to suggest God has a nose. I've got biblical grounds for that. The offerings in the Old Testament were a sweet-smelling savor. So I have to conclude some things he smells stink and this psalm tells me what they are dirty hands an impure heart and a lying tongue. So let me ask you a question. If your actions, attitude and speech were odors would they be a sweet smelling odor or would they be a severe case of body odor. Father, thank you for telling us who you are and what you require of us. And on top of all of that, giving us the grace to do what you've told us to do. Truly, you are the King, the Creator, the Sovereign God of the Universe. We can simply say, thank you for revealing yourself to us, giving your grace to us, and blessing us. In Jesus' name, amen.